Dr. Jessica Pearce is a philosopher researching bio ethics. Her most recent work is Contemporary Bioethics, a Reader with Cases, published by Oxford University Press. Before that, she wrote a book with Mark Beckoff called Wild Justice, The Moral Lives of Animals, which is the subject of our interview today. Dr. Pierce, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, I'd love to start by asking you about your background. How did you become interested in philosophy and in bioethics in particular? Well, I, you know, my first real interest was actually theology. I was a religious studies major in college and went to seminary. Um, I discovered in seminary that I was not cut out to be in the ministry, just given the, say, the um, shifting nature of my theological beliefs. Um, and that's when I really started to get interested in ethics. And I think, looking back, I was interested in it all along. Mm-hmm. I think that was what really motivated my my love for theology, is just getting to think about the big questions all the time of, why are we here and what does it mean for us to live a good life? Um, and then I went on and got my PhD in a religion department, but um, the real focus of my work and of the program that I attended, University of Virginia, was in bioethics. And um, so that's really where I took the shift in that direction. I, After I graduated from my Ph.D. program, I took a job at a medical school and teaching ethics to medical students. And it was extremely interesting and also frustrating because I felt always that I was pulled away from my first love, which was um, thinking about ethics and the environment Mm. and animals in particular. So finally have made my way back to that in this book, Wild Justice, which... um, really was sort of serendipitous. I was I was taking some courses in biology at the University of Colorado where I was teaching and in animal behavior and I was just getting more and more interested in how moral behavior in humans had mm-hmm. evolved. Um, and part of what I was learning is that it evolved in other animals too. And I just found that fascinating. So I was really just immersed in this research and this material and I happened to meet Mark at a dinner party with a, a of a mutual friend and he was working on the exact same thing of course from the perspective of an ethologist and it was like oh my god we have to write this book together and like the next day more or less we got to work and um, it, was, it was really fun it's fascinating material and uh, so that's that's how I got here well, that's great. It really is fascinating material. I find that it's one of those fields of research that a lot of people, you tell them about it, and they're like, oh my gosh, really? Like, it blows their mind. Like, animals, you know, have moral cognition. They they have thoughts about moral values and, and stuff like that. It's really interesting. So Yeah, it makes for good dinner party conversation, although many people look at me like <laughs> I'm weird. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? How did you pick up the book? Well, I'm, I've also been very interested in meta-ethics in particular, and so a lot of that has to do with the discoveries about the evolution of morality and, of course, the evolution in mora- of morality in other species uh, can really inform how we look at the evolution of morality in humans. 
And so, Wild Justice is a very, very accessible first book to read on that topic, I found. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you found it that way. That was our intention. Yeah. So let's dive right into it. A, a lot of us still have this really Cartesian view of animals where humans are special and we have morality and we have thought and animals are just little you know, machines with very small gears following instincts. But a lot of recent research has shown that the difference between humans and other animals maybe isn't so great. And in particular, in cognition, um, I wonder if maybe you could share with us some of the more impressive examples of animal cognition. I think actually some of the most impressive examples come from species that just surprise you, like fish. Um, <laughs> because we all, I think, are, are accustomed to hearing these things about primates and so forth. But um, fish, they've discovered, are able to infer their own relative social status by just simply observing dominant interactions among other fish, which I, I think is really pretty amazing. And fish has all, have also been observed to have unique personalities, um, octopi too, apparently. Um, birds are also pretty interesting. There's been some very interesting research on corvids, the group of birds that include ravens and crows and magpies. Um, there was just something in the last couple of weeks about magpies openly grieving for a fellow member who's been killed at the side of the road and holding a little funeral covering this um, this dead bird with grasses. Birds are, are really good at planning for future meals and um, remembering where they've hidden food and actually watching other birds to see where they hide their food and then remembering where they've hidden it. Rodents actually use tools. They've done studies on rats using a little kind of a rake to pull food that they can't reach with their paws. Um, dogs are able to classify photographs in the same way humans can. And um, chimpanzees, of course, we're familiar with their many talents, but um, apparently show better memory on computer games than <laughs> humans do. So pretty amazing what they can do. Yeah, and I've seen some things on dolphins as well where the sophistication of their ability to categorize and classify objects in the world is is pretty sophisticated. Yes, it's, they're, they're really amazing. And there was something in the New York Times just last week about pigs hmm. um, who apparently domestic pigs can learn really quickly how mirrors work. And the researchers aren't sure whether the pigs are actually recognizing themselves in the mirror, which is a one of the kind of classic mm -hmm. tests of cognition. But what they what they do know is that the pigs use the reflected images in the mirror to scope out um, their surroundings and to find food. Uh-huh. Um, which is, I think, shows a fairly high level of cognition. Yeah. Well, so that's some examples of animals thinking in pretty complex ways. But when we start talking about moral thought or animal morality, what are we really talking about there? Well, I think we're talking about a really complex set of behaviors that include cognition and emotion. And in the book, we we talk about what we thought what we call three clusters of behavior, mm -hmm. which is really just a way of saying um, a family resemblance, a group of behaviors that um, seem to kind of hold together as a related pattern. Um, for example. There's what we call the cooperation cluster, which includes 
cooperative behaviors, reciprocity, altruism, um, uh, trusting each other, and then the empathy cluster, which obviously includes (laughs) empathy and um, compassion, also the capacity for grieving, um, uh, sympathizing, and then finally the cluster that we call the fairness cluster, uh, which is also fairly self-evident. Well, I wonder if you could give some examples of each of those three types. What are some examples of cooperative or altruistic behavior in animals that we observe? Sure. Um, I think one interesting example, which was also published fairly recently, although the research was done at least a decade ago, and it, huh. it was the, the researchers were unable to get it published because it was a non-primate study, and people didn't think that non-primates could huh. do these things. Um, it, it's a study of hyena behavior. Um, apparently, hyenas are smarter than we thought. Um, the zoologists, Christine Drea and um, Lawrence Frank, did this study where they set up a task where two hyenas in pairs, a pair of hyenas had to uh, each pull a rope together at the same time to get a platform to drop down some food. So they paired up these hyenas in different groupings, and they were amazingly good at figuring out this task and of cooperating with each other um, and with a bunch of different pairs. And um, the researchers were just amazed at how quickly the hyenas picked it up, actually quicker than chimpanzees who've been um, tried in the same kind of experimental setup. Another example of cooperative behavior that a lot of people are familiar with is grooming Mm -hmm. behavior. And um, grooming patterns, for example, among primates are really interesting. They're not at all random. They're not just cleaning each other here and there, but they're really um, exchanging a lot of social information and engaging in these really complex interactions with each other. And um, there's a real kind of tit-for-tat that goes on in grooming behavior. If if I groom you, then I expect Mm -hmm. that you're going to groom me later. And grooming really serves it important purpose for them in keeping parasites under control. So it's, it's a useful behavior, and it also um, apparently is really calming to them. They Chimpanzees who've been groomed have lower levels of stress hormones in their bodies. Um, so for them, just like us, the having somebody mm-hmm. touch us makes us feel calmer. Um, and then there's a... a fairly familiar example, you may, well, you'll, you'll know it because you've read the book, but Jerry Wilkinson's mm-hmm. research on vampire bats. Um, so these bats go out every night, they leave their roost, and they have to collect blood. And, you know, they don't succeed every night, each one. It's not that easy to do. And of course, they're not getting blood from people's necks. They're getting blood from livestock. Um, so... If if they fail to find food, it can be dangerous because if they don't eat for a couple of days, they'll likely die. So what happens is that they get back to the roost. The bats that have been successful will share with those who've not. And then, of course, you know, the next time it's likely that those who have been shared with will share with um, the bat that was generous with them. And so there are these complex patterns among bats. So I think those are some good examples of cooperation. Um Empathy, one of the examples that has been pretty stunning and recent is a study from 2006 on mice. Um, And 
It was a study that showed basically that mice suffer distress when they're watching other mice in pain and that their own pain response is heightened when they're seeing a, a neighbor in distress. And the response is heightened even more if it's a mouse that they know, if it's a cage mate. Um, a similar kind of study has been done in rats where they had to um, push a lever to get food, but if they push the lever, they, they send a shock um, to this metal grid in an adjoining cage, and the rats in the adjoining cage get a shock. And when um, the rats know that uh, con specific is mm. going to get a shock. They will refuse to eat. Um, another really classic and lovely example of empathy is elephants, who are are really known, perhaps more than any other species, for the tenderness that they show to each other and for the close knit societies that they have. And um, one of the stories that we tell in the book is about an elephant who had a, an injured rear leg, and she could only walk very, very slowly and for over a decade and a half, the elephants in her group have waited for her and fed her, which is pretty remarkable. And I talked about magpies and grief, and elephants are also well known for, for grieving for each other. Um, they'll stand over a corpse for sometimes a day or more, just touching it with their trunk or with their foot. And um, they're very interested in the bones of dead elephants, or, or at least researchers think they might be. There's, there are a lot of interpretations mm-hmm. you might give with that particular research. But. And then um, in terms of fairness, one of the best examples, I think, comes from social play behavior in dogs. And this is Mark Beckoff, my co-author's real um, area of expertise in research. And um, he's done studies where he's taken video of dogs playing together and then slowed it down and looked at it frame by frame and what he found is that the dogs are engaging in this really ongoing and very complex communication with each other that keeps the fair play Um, as soon as you know if if a dog bites her companion too hard the the play will stop for a moment and the, the dog who's been bitten will give a look of surprise and the other dog the biter we'll have to do a play bow, which is a kind of, you know, sorry. I didn't mean to bite you quite that hard. Let's play some more. What does that look like? The play bow? Yeah. It's, you've seen it. If you've seen dogs play, they get down, they crouch down on their forelegs and stick huh. their butt in the air and oh, okay. sort of look eager and bark sometimes and wag their tails. Yeah, stop and watch dogs play, and you'll see them do play bows over and over, back and forth, and sometimes very rapidly. You, you have to watch closely to actually see them do that, but it's a very stereotyped behavior. It's always the same, and um, I think it's a, it's a way of maintaining the fairness of their play. Mm. And dogs who who don't play as fair as others, um, they're ostracized. You know, dogs don't want to. They don't want to have anything to do with them. Mm. Well, you spoke about cooperation and empathy and fairness. A bit more of a we would think more advanced behavior would be altruism, a kind of unselfish concern for the welfare of others. Do we see that in animals as well? Well, yeah. I think the first thing to say is that there's, um, there's a problem with language um, because philosophers use altruism completely differently than ethologists. 
and biologists. And um, the kind of altruism that, that you're talking about where we're really acting unselfishly and with no thought of benefit is um, is not quite the same thing as what is meant by altruism in the scientific sense. Altruism in the animal world is everywhere. I mean, slime molds are altruistic. And they actually use, scientists use that language even in relation to slime molds and ants and all sorts of bees, all sorts of um, organisms that live in, in social collections. And basically it just means that some organism um, gives up something to benefit the whole or to benefit another and incurs some cost. Mm -hmm. And um, so altruism in that sense is everywhere in nature, everywhere you look. Even the, the cells in our body are, are altruistic in certain ways and cooperating to make everything function as it should. Um, in terms of more complex kinds of altruistic behavior, um, you know, it's, it's often hard to know when you look at animals who are seemingly helping each other, whether there's some kind of benefit. And I, I think it's hard to know for humans, too. And it's true that people who do good deeds get, um, they get a chemical reward in their brain. So in that sense, it's not selfless. You're getting something for it. So I think there's there may be some some sense in which the language of altruism and selfishness are are confusing. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I would say no, altruism's everywhere. Well, I think at this point, if someone is new to the idea of thinking about animals with morality, they might say, well, okay, there's a lot of similarities in cooperative behavior and empathic behavior, but really there's a big difference still. It's just, it's just plain different. And I think one response to that is that it seems very plausible that both humans and other animals evolved these moral behaviors, these clusters of moral behavior, due to the same evolutionary pressures. Yeah. And so I wonder if we might talk a bit about that, just so we could see where there's a, a case to be made for them being basically the same, or at least having the same source. Yeah, I think you're you're exactly right. That the same patterns of behavior have evolved in response to the same kinds of evolutionary pressures, which are the need to get along in a social group. And you know, if you looked at animals who live mostly solitary lives. Perhaps they haven't evolved these same mechanisms because they don't need them as much. But for species that are highly social, and I think humans are about as social as it gets, um, these have evolved broadly and deeply. Um, and I sometimes like the image of an onion, that there are these deep inner layers that we share like empathy and particularly some of the what you might call simpler forms of empathy like emotional contagion um, where you know you're afraid so I feel afraid and you can see that that would be really adaptive in an animal society because that way for example if you're in a, um, a you're a prairie dog you can spend time eating while one of your um, other prairie dog friends looks out for predators and then you can switch off 
and you can spend more time eating that way than you would if you had to do all of the predator watching for yourself. So it's, mm-hmm. it's very adaptive to, um, to have these behaviors that connect us all emotionally with the others in our group so that we all know what's going on with each other. Um, I think that one of the things that I think is most important to emphasize, and we say this in the book very clearly, is that morality is species relative. So it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to look the same in humans as it is in wolves. And we went, if we go and look at wolves and try to, to see human morality there, we're not going to see it because mm-hmm. they don't sit around and deliberate the way we do, and they don't use language the way we do. Um, so in a sense, it isn't fair to use us as the gold standard and say, well, nobody else has it because it doesn't look like what we do. Um, you have to look at it on, you know, really on its own terms for each species. And, you know, I think that what we saw when we looked at all of the research on social behavior in animals is what we came up with in the book, The Three Clusters, that these basic behavioral patterns are evident in so many groups of animals. It has to be, um, there has to be some evolutionary continuity in behavior. And it doesn't make sense to say it's, it's only evolved in humans because we're mm-hmm. not the only social animal. Well, what are some of the implications of all these recent findings about the complexity of animal cognition and morality for our own human conceptions of morality? Does this, does, do these discoveries change, or should they change the way that we look at our own moral beliefs and practice? Um, I think they do. And, you know, I think that the the research that, um, with Collected and Wild Justice is really consistent with a lot of research that's been done in moral psychology mm-hmm. and even in philosophy over the last decade or so. And there are people starting to do what you, you might call empirical philosophy, where they're trying to, for example, um, take brain scans of people who are engaged in you know making a moral decision and trying to figure out what's actually going on in people's minds and bodies and um, I think that some of the implications are, first of all, that Kant was <laughs> dead wrong um, in, in many ways. For example, I, I think there's a, a sort of common sense um, and kind of Kantian belief that moral behavior is this self-reflective um, well thought out, um, you know, you you have some issue that arises, you recognize it as a moral dilemma of some sort, you think about the options, so what you learn to do in a undergraduate philosophy class, um, and then you kind of weigh the pros and cons and make a decision. And, you know, I think a little bit of our moral behavior is like that, and it's pretty interesting when it is. But most of it is really under the radar of our consciousness. We act empathically and altruistically without even thinking about it all the time. And there's been really interesting research on um, 
was called heuristics and these um, various sort of um, cognitive lenses or um, nets that filter our behavior. And, you know, they've found, for example, that um, people are more likely to help a stranger pick up some dropped papers if there's a bakery on the corner that's baking fresh bread. And they're less likely to help if there's a um, a leaf blower going on in the background. And so that we, we get primed and that our behavior is not pure in, in a sense. I mean, there are all sorts of things, unspoken, unseen, unconscious things, shaping the way we behave, whether it's for good or not so good. So, yeah, I think that the understanding of what human morality is like is undergoing some significant changes right now. You mentioned some work in moral psychology. Uh, it sounded like you were referring to people like Joshua Green. Yeah. And that would be the name for studying moral beliefs and uh, the formation of moral beliefs in one particular species, Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. And then while justice is, of course, kind of the same thing, uh, studying moral behavior anyway, of other species, what's the really cutting-edge work in these fields that is being done now or that you would really love to see done in terms of human morality, that's a harder one for me to answer, I think. Um, the work that you mentioned, Joshua Green's work, is fascinating and important, and um, Jonathan Haidt at the University of Virginia is doing really interesting stuff, although he's actually, I think, in psychology, not philosophy. Um, you know, I think we're starting to get a handle on what the kind of automatic behavioral responses of humans are and why those happen you know, what's going on chemically in the brain and so forth. And um, I think that what is not as well understood and maybe needs needs to be looked at by moral philosophers is what is it when we do have moments of really profound thoughtfulness about moral issues, where does that come from? Because it's easy to understand where the spontaneous behavior emerges and how to explain that. Um, because you can give a kind of Cartesian answer. You can um, sort of point to the mechanisms behind it. But I think where there's more more creativity and freedom and something else at work, uh, it, I think we understand less about that. And that seems pretty interesting to me. In terms of research into animal morality, there really are only a handful of species that have been studied well enough for us yeah. to even include in the book. Um, you know, rats, hyenas, dogs, mice, dolphins, whales, elephants, and that's kind of it. So I think research, and, and this is going on as we speak, like there are all sorts of people interested in the social behavior of animals, um, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they find out about, for example, the cats, the wild cats. We don't know that much about their social behavior and whether they have any of these things going on. The ungulates, we don't know as much about them. I guess the, the, that's what I would say. Yeah, it sounds like there's, you know, what's to be done, pretty much everything. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> because, you know, people until a decade ago didn't think that animals could behave pro-socially, really. So it's really mm -hmm. a, a work of in its infancy. It's exciting. Yeah, it's it's definitely exciting. I'm sure it's an exciting... 
subject matter to work in right now because it's just exploding and we're just beginning to learn what's happening. Yeah, we better hurry before all the species disappear. <laughs> well, there's that pressure too. Hopefully we can slow that down and give you a bit more time to do your research. <laughs> well, I'd love to put this subject of the similarities of uh, human morality and animal morality in the context of something even bigger that science has been doing to us humans for quite a while, which is to kind of undermine our delusions of grandeur about human mm -hmm. significance. You know, first we learned that we weren't the center of the universe. We aren't, uh, you know, specially infused uh, with, uh, you know, some special powers or something, and we yeah. um, are not the only creatures who have a moral sense, even. And so, does this pose yet another threat to the traditions that stubbornly contend that humanity is extremely separate and special from the rest of the world? Um, I'm thinking of religion. I'm sure there are probably others. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. It's another chip out of that block. Um, and there are so many now. It's hard to believe that it actually remains in place. But I think this is a hard one for people to swallow, really, because, and I think you've suggested it, hinted at it, um, because morality is, for many people, connected to their religion, their mm -hmm. spiritual beliefs. and. And that's been something considered beyond the ken of animals, too. And that morality is, in a sense, um, it has to do with our soul. Mm -hmm. Well, there are two things to say. Yes, I think it does take us off our pinnacle. And people who get scared about the line of argument that we take in wild justice will often say, you know, it's really dangerous because you're saying that humans aren't unique anymore. And the answer to that is, Absolutely not. In, in fact, this highlights the uniqueness of animals, but what it does question is, you know, if humans are not uniquely um, capable of feeling emotions like pain and um, fear. So a lot of the things that we do to animals, on the argument that they don't feel the things that we feel, those just don't hold up anymore. And I think that's threatening to people, too, because a lot of people... Um, get their livelihood from um, doing things to animals that would otherwise make us uncomfortable. And watching some videos of uh, factory farming can make you pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. It, I just watched Food, Inc., which, if you haven't seen it, um, that'll make you very uncomfortable. I, I did just watch it last week as well. Very well-produced documentary. Yeah, if you weren't a vegetarian before watching that, <laughs> you probably will be. You know, I really liked what you said about morality being thought of as being like part of our soul or really entwined in religion because when I talk to believers um, about why do they believe, oftentimes, you know, they don't offer the cosmological argument or the ontological argument or even the fine-tuning argument or anything like that. One of the most common responses is, well, if God doesn't exist, then there's no morality, you know? And so yeah. Yeah. I think that people really cling to that and that's really deeply felt in people and so to read a book like Wild Justice and to learn that morality is something that has evolved in many species I think is really undermining to that that stronghold. Yeah, it can be unless unless you have a far-sighted theological perspective I guess 
I think you can reconcile the research in moral justice with a belief in God, but it's not that easy. Well, I'm not sure what your theological beliefs are, but has your work on animal morality influenced your theological beliefs at all? Not in any dramatic way. I think I have been an atheist in the broad sense of not thinking that there is, that, that theism makes a lot of sense for a long time. And my worldview is really very scientific. You know, I believe in evolution and even in the evolution of morality and, and probably the evolution of religious belief too. And that religion has evolved as some kind of adaptive response uh, and behaviorally useful um, group activity. But, you know, on the other side of that, I think when you really look at an animal, when you know what's, that there's so much going on inside, it's hard not to see a soul in there and, uh, you know, feel some connection with that. And that's kind of a spiritual connection, I have to say. Well, uh, Dr. Pierce, with all the research that you have been doing and that you're aware of, with regard to animals and bioethics in general, um, the research probably motivates you to want to change some things about the world. What is it that you would like to change about the world? In terms of human behavior, the, the research in wild justice and the sort of parallel research going on in human moral psychology reminds us that behaviors like empathy begin at a really early age, like from birth on, and that very, very young children are being socialized into either being empathic or not. And so I think that um, the nurturing of, of young children is, is just mm. critical to having sort of evolving into a population of people who are compassionate and um, free thinking. In terms of, of animals, um, of course, I, I would love to see the amount of empathy toward animals in the world grow. It's really heartbreaking what happens to animals, and um, not only on these huge farms like we saw in Food, Inc., but to dogs in kennels in research labs. And, you know, there's a, a real ambivalence because a lot of the research, for example, I'm thinking right now of the research on empathy, in mice, somebody just sent me a couple of really interesting papers on on empathy in mice, and they they do deepen our understanding of what's going on in mice, and lead us to understand more clearly that mice have feelings inside. And at the same time, the research is really invasive and involves cutting these mice open and putting electrodes in, and it's not nice research. Mm-hmm. You know, do I want that kind of research to continue? No, but but yes, too, because it, it seems to increase our potential to have empathy for animals to understand that this stuff is actually going on in there and that from going back to where we started, that Descartes was full of crap. So oh, that's a hard one. Yeah. Well, uh, it's been very interesting. Uh, thank you very much for your time. It was fun. Kudos to you for getting people to think. 